Well, welcome all uh, to this Global Council briefing uh, on the new government led by Prime Minister Liz Truss, who took office yesterday. So last night we saw the appointment of the entire cabinet, about 30 or so members following Liz Truss's speech on the steps of number 10. Now, now many of these speeches leave a lasting impression. And I can think of, for example, Thatcher's quoted uh, St. Francis of, of Assisi about bringing harmony where there is discord. I can think of Blair, who said uh, that he governs as New Labour just as he campaigned as New Labour. And equally, I can think of Theresa May, uh, who spoke quite passionately about burning injustices. But Alex, what will be the lasting impression in the minds of people when they think of Liz Truss's speech yesterday afternoon, uh, other than, of course, the fact that it was uh, raining? Uh, yeah, well, apart from the metaphor of about us kind of riding out the storm, um, I, I, look, I think it was quite a, a plain speech and quite unshowy. And I think it was quite different in that respect to Boris Johnson, who, when he was on the steps of Downing Street, promised a plan to fix the social care system within 100 days, which was never delivered three years uh, after his appointment. Um, what I think was really most significant about it in terms of policy was that it gave an indication of what her priorities would be facing into the country rather than facing into the Conservative Party as the previous two months of the leadership campaign had been, which was around uh, the economy, around reforming the energy market and fixing the energy market, uh, and also fixing the NHS, which was a slightly different um, set of focuses to what had been the case during the election campaign, which had focused on things like planning and uh, issues around culture, politics and woke, and also, uh, I suppose, more substantively about issues of tax. And I want to go through the three sentences that she made oriented around the intention she has for domestic political strategy. And the first one was focused on the economy uh, and also you know, her government's overriding intentions to achieve uh, trend line growth of around 2.5% per annum as has been briefed by our campaign throughout. Can you try to encapsulate the new government's economic policy? You know, many people have labelled it as Thatcherite, but is it actually more Reaganite? Uh, well, I suppose it's Reaganite in the sense that it's happier to wear larger deficits in order to, larger sort of public spending deficits in order to uh, focus on multipliers of growth and it's, you know, it's worth borrowing to invest and um, particularly in this kind of particular moment, uh, effectively borrowing to kind of tackle the energy crisis, but we'll, we'll come on to that shortly, I'm sure. Um, I think it is that's right though, and perhaps Reagan, you could argue as well, in terms of focusing on sort of supply side uh, reform uh, in order to unlock uh growth in general, rather than focusing on driving growth in particular or using the economy to fix kind of particular social problems. I mean, the uh, analysis that Truss and her supporters have of the way that the last 10, 12 years of, they call it treasury orthodoxy, although I think that's arguably a bit of a misnomer, um, have gone, is that they say that too much the government has been involved in trying to fiddle around in the margins of kind of uh, regulating markets in a certain way to achieve some certain end, uh, often focused on sort of social equity rather than actually kind of growing the UK economy um, uh, at that trend growth of 2.5%. Now, that is the ambition. I think we're clearly going to see over the course of 
the next few weeks, sort of how that ambition translates into reality. Uh, we have a fiscal event as well as the energy announcement tomorrow, which we'll talk more about next. But we have a fiscal event, uh, I think, penciled in for 21st of September. We have a spending review for the end by the end of the year, really. Um, and there are going to be some kind of quite interesting moments which will demonstrate whether she's going to put her money where her mouth is um, uh, with regards to growth. And you've referenced it now two times, you know, the, the energy price spiral that we have seen. You know, not only in Britain, but, but also uh, across the world, particularly across Europe. Lila, I want to turn to you because the second focus of Liz Truss's speech with respect to domestic policy was on exactly this issue, energy prices and security of energy supply. Now, we understand that the first major announcement is tomorrow, and that's obviously been heavily briefed. The details have also been relatively substantively briefed. Uh, but what can you tell us in relation to this? Do we have any sort of broad outlines about the implications of what's going to be announced tomorrow? Yeah, we do. Um, as you say, actually, it's kind of surprising that the level of briefing, but I think that reflects the, the intensity of the discussions around this over the summer period and the number of options that have been put on the table, actually, by industry, by the Labour Party, um, by others kind of in the commentariat. So the current thinking is that the government will uh, fix household bills at an average of £2,500, which reflects the current price cap, price cap plus the support uh, that Rishi Sunak gave um, earlier in the year. And they'll fix those prices for around 18 months by signing an agreement with energy suppliers um, that says that they will fix the price, but that the government will pay the shortfall um, to, to the energy suppliers. And this shortfall will be funded from higher public sector sector borrowing, not from repayments on energy bills, which was initially suggested uh, by energy firms and kind of was debated over the course of yesterday. Um, and I think the key things to kind of emphasise is this package of support is expected to cost around 100, 100 billion, which would clearly push the government debt to around 100% of GDP. And there are two areas where I'd maybe highlight where there isn't yet clarity. Uh, the first is beyond what, why the 18-month period, um, beyond the fact that that might be the, the sort of timeline to the next election, um, and what happens after that, if you're basically removing the price cap for now, does that then re-emerge or, 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 or are we looking at a different pricing system? And two, how this package applies to businesses. I think it's pretty clear that this will apply to most small and medium businesses, but I think there is a wider question of whether you can apply this to kind of um, industry and larger large, larger companies in the context that they would normally be able to negotiate slightly better uh, energy prices, although that obviously isn't the case at the moment. So there's a bit of an open question there, um, but but that's but that's basically the broad contours of what what's been briefed. Yeah, so it looks like with respect to the household package, and obviously this is potentially an unlimited amount of money, given that the government's going to make up the difference between you know, the wholesale price uh, and what people are going to be charged based on the government cap level. It looks like the household level support is going to cost potentially 100 or so billion over a 16-month period. But then the business support uh, would be also uh, tens of billions of pounds. And then if you add that to all of the uh, fiscal commitments that Trust has made throughout the campaign, which will be delivered relatively shortly, you're talking about potentially around 200 or so billion pounds uh, over the next 16 months added 
uh, to the debt, which is, of course, very significant. But it seems that trust was downplaying at certain points throughout the campaign, the overall sort of sovereign debt levels of the UK, saying that the UK's levels compared favourably to other countries. So maybe that points to, you know, a greater tolerance of higher levels of debt for a period. But Alex, I want to talk about now the the, the composition um, of the government, but but I think it relates quite clearly to this other point, which is the third uh, sentiment, sentence in her speech about domestic priorities, and that's the NHS uh, and restoring um, the performances um, post-COVID. And we're going to talk about the cabinet, but I just want to actually ask a question of Lila first, in particular, because of course the cabinet did involve the appointment of a, a new deputy prime minister in the form of Trey's Coffey, who's also going to be taking on the role of health secretary. And perhaps this points to the importance that Truss is placing with respect to health, uh, given that she's appointing you know, her closest friend to that particular role. Lila, how is the health secretary going to be putting the NHS back on, a, on an even keel? So I think this is quite important that in terms of a key takeaway from last, uh, last yesterday afternoon's speech. Actually, the NHS had not been a focus of uh, Liz Truss's leadership campaign. Um, she hadn't mentioned it in the nine or so weeks uh, that they were uh, here in Hustings. And actually what we saw today, yesterday was that she was not only sort of frontlining it in terms of um, her being her top, one of her top three priorities, but she was, uh, was also very clear that she wanted to give it prominence through the appointment of Therese Coffey. And it's, it's not just that Therese Coffey is a kind of potentially close friend of Liz Truss or that the two have a close working relationship, but also that the deputy prime minister role hasn't actually in, um, in the period before been coupled with um, one of a role in one of the most important spending departments in government. And that gives Therese Coffey really quite a bit of power, both um, as health secretary, but also in a kind of coordination and corralling role in terms of getting potentially uh, the funding and, and resource that she needs. But the problem for Therese Coffey is twofold. The first is really that she hasn't got much time to deliver the systemic reforms to the NHS that we sort of began to hear her describing this morning. Um, we've got, you know, potentially two years out from a general election. And, and as we've seen kind of from previous health secretaries' attempts at this, actually that is not going to be long enough to both pass any required legislation and then pursue the sort of systemic reform, um, particularly when it's on kind of areas like workforce um, and, and culture where you're going to need to work with the NHS uh, to deliver that. And I, and I think this, the second problem is clearly funding. I think outside of the energy package and the tax cuts, it's very hard to see how Liz Truss is able to um, increase departmental budgets in, in cash terms. And I think that's not going to immediately become clear but you know come November when she's um, likely to have a spending review I think it's going to be extremely difficult um, for her to deliver further funding for the Department of Health and for the NHS and almost the only context in which she does it is in in almost moving funding or reprofiling spending away from other departments which will also kind of be be very contentious. And so we've covered you know, the references to domestic policy that Liz Truss gave in her speech. And, and really, that was the amount of substance in, in those, those three points that we've just gone through. But obviously, absent was a reference to net zero policy, which is a, a huge legal commitment uh, that is going to entail uh, tens of billions of pounds uh, each year, 
to deliver, and obviously that is a legal commitment under the Climate Change Act. Now, she's, she's appointed uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg to that role, who has, who has got uh, somewhat negative views about elements of the net zero agenda. But she's also made another appointment uh, to, to Cabinet. I wonder if you can talk about that and also how we perceive this government's approach towards net zero, given that she didn't reference it in her speech. Look, I think it's clearly not a priority for Liz Truss personally. Um, and I think she definitely doesn't see the synergies between energy security and net zero that perhaps her predecessor did and even kind of the ministers that worked under, under him. But I think there are two areas where actually there's some kind of glimmers of hope if you're sort of, um, if you're thinking about net zero policy. The first is that actually quasi quarting is quite convinced by the fact that to uh, achieve energy security, we need to be going kind of faster and bolder in some of our net zero policy, particularly in regard to expansion of renewables, a focus on um, hydrogen and the development of hydrogen clusters and CCUS. Um, and I think he'll remain very convinced of that as Chancellor and actually might look more favourably on, on, on the funding of that than previous Chancellors. And I think the other aspect of this, which has not kind of yet been borne out, is that once you begin, as, as suggested by Truss's energy package, decoupling um, the price of our energy from the uh, global wholesale gas price, actually there becomes a bit of an opportunity to look at the potential cost benefits of expansion of renewables. That said, those are kind of uh, logical sort of step-by-step -step processes that you will imagine the kind of machinery of government um, and officials will begin to initiate. I think in the immediate term, we should expect to see kind of uh, net zero and certainly uh, funding for specifically net zero projects deprioritized. And actually think you're already seeing this through uh, her commitment to um, put a moratorium on, on green levies. Although, importantly, even with that, while she wants to take them off bills, it's not clear that that funding from uh, renewable projects and other and other energy efficiency measures is actually going to be totally withdrawn. It might just be moved on to general taxation. So I think it's not quite as gloomy a picture as, as people are keen to present. Yes. And so we've made a couple of references now to some of the new cabinet appointments. But, but Alex, I want to come back to you to talk about the general uh, composition of it and what we can, can read into it politically. You know, clearly, she's opted uh, to install a number of her political allies, frankly, as most prime ministers seek to do. But she has been accused of being a little bit too unaccommodating to those who didn't back her in the campaign. Is it the case that she is not being magnanimous in, in victory? You know, does this suggest that she sees doing that as a sign of weakness rather than strength? Or what, what else can we read? Um, well, I think it shows that she thinks that there needs to be buy-in behind her kind of general strategy. And, you know, people have mentioned, for instance, Dominic Raab not being appointed to cabinet. I mean, you know, he, he said that Liz Truss's economic policy and that amounted to an electoral suicide note. It's hard to have people uh, in the cabinet if they sort of said that kind of thing about you. And I think that was kind of the perception that she took uh, you know, she she didn't win the election by a canter, but it was still a comfortable victory. Uh, and I think she feels that there is kind of a sort of a right to reward her allies. Now, whether that is going to cause trouble down the road, I mean, that is as much in the 
gift of her opponents within the Conservative Party as it is in within her gift. Uh, I think she views that um, delivery along the lines that she sort of desires is probably more important to the Conservative Party's electoral success. Uh, and, and also, I think she still does have to kind of uh, balance some of the uh, remaining kind of Johnson faction within Conservative Party that aren't going to want to see people who are intimately involved in his downfall um, elevated up into uh, positions of power. Now, the thing is, what I think this uh, will lead to is that you will end up having um, potentially scope for rebellions on aspects of policy that are most favoured by some of her supporters. Um, so, for instance, Suella Braverman in the Home Office is well known for wanting to um, exit uh, the UK from the European Convention on Human Rights. Uh, however, you know, uh, you know, however, the government has already pulled the kind of the, the Bill of Rights that sort of aimed to sort of fiddle around with aspects of that as kind of a little bit of a precursor to exit. And I think it means that in a way, some of those favoured things that her bigger supporters wanted are going to have to be taken off the table in order to keep um, the rest of the party on side. So I think that it's, it's largely a question of party management. I think we'll end up sort of seeing what effect it has on policy development over the course of the next few months. And beyond the cabinet, I think the changes she's made on the advisory side are rather of note. You know, there's been much talk of it already. You know, clearly all prime ministers reform the structure of number 10 and indeed the visors they have within number 10 with them. But it does seem like there has been more of a clear out uh, than has been the case uh, in previous conservative prime ministerial changes. Now, obviously, you, Alex, have got a pretty good feel of number 10's general structures from, from the time that you were there. Do you think that Truss's decision to appoint a very small group of core number 10 advisors and disband certain number 10 units and functions by merging them uh, into parts of the cabinet office infrastructure, do you think that's very significant? Do you think it's going to affect how this government is run? Um, it, you know, it will affect how the government is run uh, sort of, you know, uh, at the, I suppose not. At, it's not quite at the margins because it is kind of the engine room of government. But it's about the slight swapping out one component for another. I mean, it could be brilliant. It could be a disaster. I, I think what I would say is that it broadly takes it back to actually how the Conservatives tried to run the government in from about 2010 through to 2014 um, with a relatively small policy unit. Uh, I think you don't have a legislative affairs unit partly because. Actually, a lot of that job should be done by the whips, and that was uh, in respect. Um, uh, uh, the, the creation of the Legislative Affairs Unit was in response to Theresa May losing the majority in 2017, which I was there for. Um, the delivery unit was an attempt to place discipline on what was a fundamentally undisciplined prime minister, um, arguably speaking, uh, in Boris Johnson. Uh, and, and actually, I think sort of relying on uh, the Economic and Domestic Affairs um, uh, Secretariat in the Cabinet Office is a kind of a status quo ante move. Now, she, there are people who would argue that that creates a problem where you have effectively the civil service running the government. Uh, but you've got to remember that Liz Truss is a former think tanker. She's very well versed in sort of ways of policy. One thing that you can't say about Liz Truss is that she doesn't know what she thinks. Um, and she is appointed a series of people who know what she thinks, 
uh, she likes what they think. Uh, I think it, you know, frankly, number 10 has to operate on the basis of trust and knowledge in order to operate effectively across government. So I think, frankly, worries about whether it's too small, uh, you know, is kind of slightly missing the point. I mean, I worked in number 10s where there could be special advisors wandering around the corridors for years and the prime minister would probably have no idea who they were, which I don't think was functional for the prime minister. And I don't think it was functional, frankly, pleasant uh, for the special advisor. Um, I also think what it shows is that it's going to try and, you know, give responsibility and authority genuinely to the secretaries of state. Um, now, what happens when the secretary of state has a eccentric idea or an idea that's not going to, Liz Trust doesn't believe is going to be politically saleable? Um, you know, there is a question there about how you then sort of unbroker that. But I think, uh, you know, and often prime ministers, because the, the the sheer weight of material on the in-tray have had to defer to uh, senior staff, I think there's a question as to whether that will be able to work properly. Um, but, you know, we'll see. It's, it's her number 10. She can run a house she wants. Well, I did, and Cabinet met this morning you know, for the first time as a group, and I thought it was rather notable, and indeed others noted it, that there were no special advisors on the, the, the periphery of, of, of the table. Um, and, you know, usually, as I say, there is, there is a smattering of, of senior advisors sitting uh, in those chairs behind, but there were actually no advisors uh, that were political appointments. There were only officials uh, and Cabinet ministers in the room. And there's a lot of debate, and you just referenced it there, over whether or not Truss intends to give her secretaries of state more autonomy over their policymaking decisions. And it seems you know, in the absence of a number 10 presence, particularly at cabinet meetings, is this an indication that she actually does genuinely want to empower her secretaries of state? And indeed, you know, she did state it at the beginning of the cabinet meeting, apparently, and you know, clearly <laughs> there are leaks in cabinet if that got out. But is that genuinely her desire to empower secretaries of state? Because clearly there are very significant implications with respect to policy creation from that. I mean, I think she spent eight years as a sort of a middling secretary of state effectively before becoming briefly foreign secretary and then prime minister. And I think she has a sense of what the best way to uh, be treated as a middling secretary of state is. Um, uh, and, you know, and, and also fundamentally, uh, too much of government for too long has been focused on what one or two star special advisors think and believe, and it undermines ultimately the principle, uh, which is the prime minister, because everyone thinks it's the you know they end up being a kind of a, a puppet for a couple of Svengali's uh, behind them. Uh, I personally think it's rather refreshing that you don't have uh, a smattering of special advisors, which you know would start off as a smattering and end up with people effectively being kicked out of the cabinet room because they're trying to kind of get in there to show how senior they were. Um, uh, but look, the proof will be in the pudding and governments do come in with all sorts of promises about how they're going to run a new type of government and it's not going to rely on advisors and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and, and we end up with it kind of um, falling away a little bit. Uh, but I think it shows that she's trying to set off with the best of intentions about uh, how the government does need to be run. And Lila, I want to talk back to you now, uh, because, of course, Truss was also in the Commons today and she delivered uh, her first uh, PMQ session as, as Premier. Uh, clearly, you know, the Prime Minister is not just going to be relying on government to get 
the pledges that she made throughout the campaign achieved. It will also require Parliament, you know, both houses, the Commons and the Lords. Can you outline the policies that might require legislation? You know, she's spoken a lot about from day one, we'll be, be doing X, Y and Z. Now, clearly nothing has happened from day one. But can you outline you know, some of the commitments made throughout the campaign uh, that will require legislation, perhaps any implications for the existing legislative agenda uh, that was outlined in the in the last Queen's speech? Yeah, so I think the key thing is that her uh, promised kind of tax cuts uh, will require a a finance bill or or, or, or a piece of legislation to, to deliver them. And I think the important thing is those will be, that, that piece of legislation will be prioritised. So um, we would probably see that beginning its passage through the Commons immediately after she makes her fiscal um, intervention or, or mini budget, um, if we're allowed to call it that, um, on, I think it's expected for the 19th of September. So, so that's going to clearly defer uh, the legislation that was perhaps scheduled immediately um, for now. And then there are also a number of um, other pledges that she made during um, her campaign, which probably won't all require primary legislation, but a lot will require some, some tweaks to secondary legislation. So things like um, joining together the PRA and the, and the FCA, um, some of the things that she promised around industrial action, and certainly something um, like HS3, which she recommitted herself to during the campaign, would likely require a piece of underlying legislation. But on those things, I think she is going to be likely led by the extent to which they both fit into those three priorities Alex outlined um, at the top, and also um, the extent to which uh, they kind of respond to the macroeconomic circumstances. So you could see her bringing forward a, a bill on industrial action slightly more um, quickly if we continue to experience the spate of strikes that we've um, seen over the summer period. But I also would point to the fact that there are existing vehicles that can deliver quite a lot of the changes um, that she wants. So, for example, some of the um, uh, pledges she made around education and grammar schools can be delivered through the existing schools bill um, and also um, and also her energy package. So the kind of bits that we outlined earlier, if that requires legislation, could be potentially placed into the energy bill, which was introduced into the Commons ahead of summer. Um, and obviously represents a, a neat vehicle for some of that. I think the interesting thing um, that, that is still really not clear in terms of timing is when she brings back some of those bills that were very important to the last government, which she's been required to comment on during the campaign, but which perhaps have um, kind of serious amendments to be made um, by, by her and she's committed to and, and are going to be contentious. So I'm thinking particularly here about the online safety bill, uh, the Bill of Rights, that Joe mentioned, which now looks like it's going to be revised to the extent that it's delayed possibly even up until the next election, and, and less potentially kind of on the surface contentious bills like the, the data bill, uh, which isn't necessarily kind of supposed to be um, particularly contentious. It's just um, allowing the UK to diverge slightly more from the UK, EU's GDPR regime. But now in the context of data transfers to China and other countries becoming slightly more controversial, we can expect that that bill might be rethought and revisited to account for different kinds of parliamentary risk, but also um, the views of the new secretaries of state and number 10. And, and actually, I think that's the kind of remaining unknown um, in terms of the legislative agenda. How, how quickly can they um, turn around those bills that require quite serious amendments? And still just keeping on 
parliament, you know, there's clearly some difficult legislation coming down the track that actually wasn't part of Liz Truss's campaign, but will nonetheless uh, remain something that she's committed to. You know, I can think of, for example, the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, which is going to be you know, a problem uh, for the House of Lords. Can you perhaps, you know, put your former chief whip and, and, and former uh, Northern Ireland special advisor hats on and speak about the potential tension uh, with the EU that could uh, be exacerbated um, and also the, the implications for the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. Um, and obviously, you know, it's worth noting that last night between uh, Liz Truss and, and Joe Biden talking about on their first call, Northern Ireland, you know, there was a different sort of outcome in the in the overviews that were released by the White House number 10, respectively. Uh, and it seems that Joe Biden was applying a little bit of pressure on uh, the Prime Minister with respect to uh, the Northern Ireland protocol. Can, can you speak about this general issue? Yeah, of course. So I think the, the main thing is that initially there is some space and there is some time to find some agreement with the EU that, that may not necessitate the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill coming forward immediately. So um, we're now expecting that n- there'll be no kind of um, formal action taken by the UK on the on the 15th of September, which is when their response is due to uh, the EU's legal action. Um, so that uh, they will extend kind of grace periods um, on a slightly kind of uh, dodgy legal basis, but there's no kind of immediate commitment to art- triggering Article 16 then, as some had speculated. And also, um, Trust isn't planning to immediately bring the bill back um, to the Lords, given that, as discussed, she's going to be prioritising her kind of fiscal intervention and then probably some, uh, a finance bill or something of the sort to implement that. So we're, we're probably expecting the whole month of September to pass without there kind of being a crunch moment on this. This creates some space for kind of high-level diplomacy, a bit of kind of um, bedding in of uh, the new Foreign Secretary and the new Northern Ireland Secretary and, and, a, and a bit of options for discussion around there. However, as soon as this bill does come back to the Lords, um, it is completely anticipated that they will either kind of gut it uh, by amending it to such an extent that it kind of doesn't have its original meaning or block it totally. Um, and I think in that context, Truss's options become much harder and much more finely balanced because in that context, she kind of has two choices. The first of which is she seeks to find that high level compromise with the EU, which kind of doesn't go as far as what she wanted, but sort of saves enough face to not bring the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill to its conclusion and um, put it on statute. Uh, the risk there is clearly that VARG are not satisfied that they've kind of been taken up a bit of a hill on this, and and they and they really feel that they need um, all the all all the things that um, are included in the bill, and not just kind of some fudges and compromises. Um, so that's kind of her one option, which is kind of very hard from a party management perspective. And then you've got the second option, which is to proceed uh, with the bill but using the Parliament's Act to bring it back in the next session. So basically rejecting. Uh, the Lord's amendments or, or, or their attempts to block it and seeking to uh, to complete it in the next session, which which likely wouldn't be until June next year and could be later. So but while that kind of saves her face with the parties, it potentially creates kind of obviously a huge, uh, a, in effect, a sort of trade war with the EU, which in the context of the current inflationary pressure and the macroeconomic headwinds is not a great conclusion either. 
So it's very hard to see outside of those two options uh, where she where she's able to land it. And I think the best hope is kind of that in the next six weeks or so, there is some flexibility shown by the EU and some willingness to compromise shown by Truss. Um, now she's in uh, her new position as Prime okay, Minister. Okay, so we, we, we've got some some questions that have come in uh, over, over the course of the last half hour or so. I mean, unfortunately, we've got too many to go through all of them. But I'll just select a few. The first uh, is with respect to Liz Truss's small state instincts, which are pretty notorious. She authored a book all about them. Um, how could she reconcile those small state uh, instincts with the scale of the economic challenges ahead? Maybe to Alex. Um, well, I think that uh, it is, I think small state is sometimes a little bit of a misnomer. I think it's actually about um, focusing more on growing the pri- she would she would rather focus more on how you grow the private sector than how you grow the state in order to improve the private sector uh, is her kind of ideation of her kind of political views um you know she has grown up in a country and has had a political career in a country where we spend routinely you know 120 130 billion in normal times on the NHS, where we spend a similar amount uh, on um, welfare and pensions. Um, I think that her argument is that if we are going to have that huge um, amount of spending uh, coming out of the uh, public coffers, we need to do more to earn that money and we need to earn more money in order to make that affordable. So it's not really about how you find ways, for instance, to um, you know, it's not necessarily about how you find ways to spend earlier on in the process so that the NHS has kind of got, you know, people are prevented from accessing the NHS because they're in better health. It's more about actually sort of how do you kind of make the economy work better? Um, and so I think, you know, we will see that when it comes to small state instincts, she is about to borrow a hundred billion pounds in order to kind of help people deal with the impact of uh, high energy costs over the course of the, this year or two, um, while at the same time refusing to have a windfall tax and refusing to increase corporation tax, because she sees those two latter measures as the most important way that in future we are able to access the private capital and have the growth in order to um uh, build an economy that can more easily deal with these shocks in future. So, I think that, of course, we already have uh, a windfall tax that was legislated for in August, which was obviously 65% on the profits of those. Yeah, and, and, and which she and the now Chancellor fiercely opposed um, because they viewed it as, uh, uh, you know, one step forward, two steps back in terms of how the UK needs to grow in future. And there's another question about the, the 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 way in which trust may or may not resonate with the electorate, because of course, you know, we're dealing with a very small proportion of the population uh, in in the race that we've just all I- endured, um, and, and ultimately, you know, the vast majority of people in the public are, are unable to vote in that process, and so she has never been tested at the country level. Do we think that she'll be able to relate to the country? Are we going to see a poll bounce? You know, she's going to spend 150 or so billion tomorrow. Is that going to be worthy of one? 
I mean, I mean, potentially new prime ministers coming in midterm often do get a pull bounce. Um, Boris Johnson was kind of unusual in that he didn't. Uh, and it was really only once he got the deal that his polling started to improve, if you remember late 2019. Um, I think that, I think there's kind of a, a risk for the Conservative selectorate that voted for Liz Truss, that she is not necessarily Tony Blair levels of charisma. However, they look at her and think she's slightly sort of socially awkward seeming, but she's got strong opinions and beliefs. That sounds rather like Margaret Thatcher, who also wasn't to everyone's taste, but was a repeated election winner. They also put her up against Rishi Sunak and said, well, he's also not really got the common touch and particularly his kind of polling with the public was quite bad. Uh, after the spring budget, uh, I mean, it's. I think she. No, I. Th- I think the thing is, elections are a choice, um, and the Tories are going to lose if they uh, don't tackle these crises uh, crises adroitly in the next few years. Um, they would also say that if it's a choice between Liz Truss and Keir Starmer, it's not quite the same as John Major versus Tony Blair in nineteen ninety seven. Um, so there's, you know, there's a realism about it, but there, there's also a, a pragmatism about what the next election is going to look like. And we do have, unfortunately, quite a lot of other questions, but we are going to wrap up here. But I do see some questions, for example, on the North Sea transition deal and also on uh, the legislative agenda with respect to audit reform and corporate governance reform. So please do get in touch with us um, after the call on those issues and we'd be very happy to uh, discuss those with you at a, at a later later point and also anybody else who's asked a question on a, on a very specific issue please do get in touch uh, because we'd very much like to talk to you about that well thank you very much everybody for dialing in today um obviously you know there, there may well not be years ahead of a trust government uh, but at least there will be one year um and so we very much look forward to talking to you throughout that year in relation um to these sorts of uk public policy issues in the future thank you <laughs>